Welcome to the Collector's Edition episode of Victorian Saplings. Today we welcome three scholars with three takes on the material history of collection, a practice and an approach to the material world that defined Victorian culture. I speak with Maria Zitterup about some beautiful books that document the Victorian fascination with natural history specimens, from wildflowers to ferns to seaweed. Anne Hung talks with Freya Gowley about collage and about the display of a collection of engravings on the surfaces of a decorative screen. And Alison Headley shares her insights about a one-of-a-kind collection, a scrapbook dedicated to the life and work of John Ruskin. Let's dive right in. In 2019, Dr. Maria Zittera curated Nature on the Page, the Print and Manuscript Culture of Victorian Natural History. To create the exhibition, Maria drew on the rich collection of 19th century naturalist books held by the University of Toronto's Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library, where the exhibition was held. Thank you for joining me, Maria. Sure, happy to be here. So Maria, I didn't have the pleasure of visiting the exhibition, but the catalog, which is authored by you and published by Coach House Press, is so opulent in its offerings, both in terms of the colored images and your thoughtful analysis that I, I do feel like I was there. Could you tell us about some of the books you featured in Nature on the page? So the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library has an amazing collection of Darwin's works. And in 1982, there was an exhibition curated by the then uh, head of the Fisher Library, Richard Landon, on Darwin. But there really hadn't been another exhibition since then on Victorian natural history. And that previous exhibition was really focused, as I say, sort of on Darwin. And the Fisher has an amazing collection of all editions of Darwin and so forth. But an offshoot of that collection, which had been assembled by the biographer Richard Freeman of Darwin, was this Victorian natural history collection. And the Victorian natural history collection at the Fisher is really a history of kind of natural history in print. So um, children's natural history works, works published by men and women on kind of all matter of Victorian natural history. So there was this sort of rich collection sitting there of many, many volumes. And then at the same time, the Fisher also had some examples of manuscript natural history works. So private albums that had been compiled by women of um, seaweed specimens that they had found or their own drawings of moths and butterflies. And so the combination of this rich collection of printed works that really traced for us sort of how we always hear about kind of the Victorian natural history craze, but I really wanted to get behind that sort of, um, you know, kind of flat descriptor in a way and try to trace through print how Victorian history, uh, Victorian natural history pursuits just became so prolific. And, you know, why do we still have have all these kind of albums of seaweeds so floating around, so to speak. You can still see them on eBay today um, sometimes. Um, so I was interested in kind of telling 
other stories of Victorian natural history, non-Darwin stories, highlighting the role of women in authoring, particularly works on botany, but other natural history works, and highlighting, again, these manuscript items that are wholly unique. So in some cases, it's a printed volume of William Withering's Systematic Arrangement of British Plants, an important handbook at the time, but that copy then would have manuscript notes or even in one case I was dealing with a copy that had um, specimens of ferns, um, you'll see from the catalog, sewn directly to the page. So I was really interested in not only kind of the specimens themselves and the way print cultivated this taste for natural history, but I was interested in how people used their natural history works as well. How did they engage with the page? There's a copy of Buick's Birds that's interleaved by Charles Fothergill, a Canadian politician, and he hand-colored some of its images page for page. He wrote his own notes on species. So that was something else that I was trying to get at, was how did people use these natural history printed works to then make their own collections, or how did they kind of engage on the printed page with the, the fruits of their own collections? Maria, you touched on the role of women in Victorian natural history and their contributions to these books. Could I ask you to tell us more about that? Sure, absolutely. So I think one thing that happened in the course of conducting research for this exhibition was I had kind of gone in accepting this distinction between amateur and professional botany, for example, and the, the women who had in the 19th century participated in botanical uh, pursuits that they kind of fell into this amateur side of things, you know, not versed in kind of Latin taxonomy, not working with micro microscopes. And, you know, what I switched learned is that distinction between amateur and professional botany. In practice, that's very hard to maintain once you look at the contributions by women to the practice of botany, which range from authoring, you know, in some cases, dialogues, conversations on botany. So, you know, works that were meant to kind of teach botany to children and things like that. But women's contribution to botanical works, you know, was much deeper than simply within kind of the field of children's literature and books aimed at women, for example. So I was quite interested in this mammoth book on orchids, um, on the orchids of Mexico and Guatemala. And, you know, this is a giant book that is, I think it's 38 pounds. I'm just going to check my own notes here. Yeah, 38 pounds published between 1837 and 43 in parts. And it um, is a series of hand-colored lithographs of orchids from uh, Mexico and Guatemala, and they are life-sized illustrations. So only Audubon's Birds is really bigger than this book. Um, now, this was authored by James Bateman, a kind of plant collector and garden designer. And you have all these male Victorian plant hunters with names such as Skinner and Henchman, um, which, you know, we can all kind of think about. And all their stories of kind of tracking down orchids in Central America are really these kind of like masculine, heroic narratives of, you know, dragging 
thing, um, you know, just kind of looking at some of my notes, sort of dragging the orchids from their hiding place, the blushing orchids and so forth, filling their canoes, you know, just this, this very, very colonial plunder of these orchids. But then I got interested, I, you know, I happened to kind of notice that actually it was two women whose um, drawings and paintings, and just checking my notes here, it's 37 out of 40 of the plates. The preparatory drawings for those plates were done by two women, Sarah Ann Drake and Augusta Withers. So I got quite interested in how there were sort of these competing narratives of these male plant hunters capturing these blushing orchids, and then the women artists who were charged with sort of preserving their blooms, who did the preparatory works for the really exquisite, exquisite plates of these orchids. And the Fisher Library had a manuscript album of um, watercolors by Sarah Ann Drake of orchids. And so that's an example where, you know, they've kind of fallen out of the history of the publication of this work a little bit. But when you kind of dig into the work, even though it's authored by James Bateman and it's men who collected the orchids, you know, or some of these orchids would only bloom for, say, three days. And so they had to kind of capture their ephemeral beauty. And I got quite interested in that's a kind of concrete example of how women, um, you know, were, were not simply drawing, you know, for their own private albums, but they were, in fact, translating into visual culture these discoveries and transfers of orchids to the imperial realm. Maria, you tell a wonderful story in your catalog about a woman artist rushing to the scene to capture a recently bloomed or a freshly blooming orchid. Could I actually return you to the topic of plunder and ask you to talk a little bit about the environmental history here and the ecological impact? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's something I became quite conscious of, too, as I worked with these manuscript albums that contained these specimens from the 19th century. So there are some printed works that contain specimens that are um, that adhere to the page. And in, in the case of printed seaweed books that were illustrated with what were called natural illustrations and these are actually just the specimens themselves. They were called natural illustrations, which is um, an interesting kind of title. So, but there are sort of printed works with specimens on the page, and then there are these manuscript compilations. And so I became quite conscious just as I even handled these works and handled them delicately and carefully because they contain, you know, this materials of species which have since gone extinct in some cases or are are threatened, threatened species. So I was constantly kind of working with the this idea of how these Victorians preserved um, these species, but also plundered them. Um, you know, this uncomfortable and settling paradox and and then sort of our role today and what we should do with these books, because they are in these repositories. And I also work on seeds. And I think a lot about this in terms of seed collections today. There are these historical seed collections. And 
In, this, in the case of seeds, one thing that has begun to happen are initiatives uh, th that, are, that are about rematriation of seeds. So returning seeds to the communities from which really they were plundered. Um, the Victorians often use the term transfer, you know, the transfer of orchids um, from uh, Central America to, to Britain. But, you know, in the catalog, I use the term imperial theft. I think that's, that's probably more accurate. And so where rematriation might be possible by institutions for something like seeds, when you encounter these seaweed specimens in libraries and these sort of desiccated wildflowers on the page, and not knowing, you know, necessarily where they came from, sometimes they're not even identified in these albums, you know, rematriation doesn't necessarily seem viable in the same way, although that could be possible in a general sense. If if I was dealing mainly with um, local natural history specimens um, from England, but you could imagine in a kind of more international context how that would be possible. It's a long way around to say one thing that faces these libraries are should they digitize these works? And some have been digitized, but I'm also quite conscious of the carbon footprint of digitization. You know, just all is such an energy intensive process. And then even to access digital images means you're doing that through some kind of device that's made of, you know, some plastics and metals and, you know, the e-waste and all the energy that it takes to have these images always on or accessible and the integrity checking of files. And there's a whole literature by librarians and archivists on the digital footprint of digitization itself and whether digitization is preservation. So all, this notion of preservation in the sense of what did the Victorians feel that they were preserving and then trying to think about that in relation to the plunder that they enacted that plunder has brought us these specimens today. Sometimes they're remnants of lost biodiversity. But then what should our next steps be? And there's that desire for accessibility um, to sort of make materials accessible, which is important. There are some things that can be done with herbarium specimens, such as DNA extraction that could have a scientific value in ecological restoration projects. So I guess it's, it was that it, it remains that idea of preservation by the Victorians. And then what would it mean for us to preserve? What does it mean for us to preserve these works? Just lastly, Maria, we're having this conversation in spring 2021, and many of our listeners might, like me, be yearning to make a visit to a library or an archive, spaces that are currently closed to visitors. Can you help us manage our longing a little bit by sharing a memory of your work preparing nature on the page? I'm guessing a lot of your work had very material or, or sensory dimension to it. Is there a moment of discovery, an encounter you had that comes to mind? Um, it's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, so much of, ironically, kind of so much of the research, not ironically, but necessarily so much of the research took place in the space of the library. But I was always kind of quite conscious of that, you know, that attention between kind of working on these books in the Fisher Library, which can be quite cold, um, you know, it's air conditioned, preserve the books, you're often kind of huddled in a sweater, even though it's August, um, you're sitting over a desk with these, these materials, though, gathered outdoors, right? And so 
you know, you, I, I felt sometimes this kind of this disconnect because I would imagine the people kind of, you know, the word ramble occurs in all these Victorian natural history books or, you know, on their seaside rambles or the rambles through fields. And there I was kind of huddled, you know, quite contained um, over a desk looking at what came of that. And, you know, in a way that's, that's sort of, <laughs> it, it has prepared me for, you know, a kind of isolation, right, that we're all in, engaged in. I mean, we can walk outside and everything like that. But, you know, this is a time where uh, we are not traveling, we're not going on these, these, we're not crossing the globe in the way that some of us did for our research. And, as I say, I had already been thinking about the environmental aspects, you know, of encountering books through digitization, as well as sort of the carbon footprint of my own research. You know, I had many amazing, amazing moments with those books. And sometimes, and one of them, just to give a specific example, was I was kind of leafing through these books and what I thought were illustrations because the seaweeds were just so vibrant and bright in this one work by Mary Howard. When I looked more closely, I realized that they were, well, I didn't yet know the term, but they were an example of these natural illustrations. And so that was a kind of moment where I thought that what I was looking at was a print or a plate. And in fact, it was the real specimen. But another moment was, I, I would just say, grappling with that 38-pound book. Every time I wanted to look at that 38-pound book, it took at least two other people at the library to help me move that book to um, to my little desk at the Fisher Library. And so it's actually called, its moniker is something like The Librarian's, Librarian's Nightmare, um, that book by, by Bateman. And so like that physical negotiation of this mammoth work, I thought, you know, in its little way was kind of a repetition of that labor to secure these, these orchids. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of special moments. Yeah. Maria, you're reminding me of George Cruikshank's lovely vignette in the front of Bateman's book that you share in the catalog with tiny people with large crane-like devices lifting the book. So uh, there was a self-awareness there, at least from Bateman. So thank you for all you shared, Maria, and thank you for joining me today. Sure, absolutely. Great to talk to you, Vanessa. We turn now to Anne Hung for her conversation with Dr. Freya Gowley, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in history at the University of Derby. Frey's research focuses on the relationship between identity and visual and material culture in 18th and 19th century Britain and its empire, with a focus on three key sites, the home, the collaged object, and the body. Welcome to the podcast, Freya. Thank you so much for having me. Of those three sites you've researched, we'll be focusing on the collaged object today. When most people think of collages, they think of paper glued to other bits of paper, but your research focuses on paper and other materials being layered and displayed on larger objects. What exactly defines the Victorian collaged object and what interests you most about them? That's a, a good question and it's not one that I'm entirely sure I have a complete answer to yet. So in my research, I want to show how in the 18th and 19th centuries, this was a time that witnessed the production of paper cutting, decoupage, quilts, 
extra illustrated or grain-derived text, commonplace books, shell work, scrapbooks, and photo montage, in addition to traditional paper collage. So these objects really encapsulate lots of the processes we think about uh, collage as being conceptualized and made through. So selection and collection, adaptation and reformulation, these just use a, a more diverse array of materials through which to pull those collage objects together. One type of collaged object you've studied is a scrap screen. What exactly is a scrap screen? <laughs> yeah, so one of the types of collage that the project examines is different forms of furniture, which have often paper scraps and fragments attached to it. And one of these key types of furnishings that I've been looking at, as you say, is the scrap screen. Now, this emerged as a practice in the late 18th century, um, but very much reaches its apotheosis in the Victorian period. And countless examples survive from this time. And you can find tons actually on auction sites like eBay really quite cheaply, which is sort of testament to their current lack of popularity. But these objects were made by decoupaging ephemeral paper goods, essentially, to wooden screens. So you would purchase your screen, but you would customise it by gluing scraps or other kinds of paper to it. And this kind of production really emerges as a direct response to some of the technological revolutions in print that happen in the 18th and 19th centuries. We often talk about the 18th century as being a kind of print revolution where more forms of printed matter were available than ever before. And then in the late 19th century uh, with mass production, we really see the culmination of this. So um, a good example would be something like the invention of chromolithography, which is a specific kind of colour printing. And this leads to the production of a wide array of scraps, which are used in things like scrapbooks, of course, but also on scrap screens. And we see some of the most innovative and crowded examples of scrap screens featuring lots of small, colourful scraps over every possible inch of the screen. Those are the ones that I like the most. <laughs> It's so fascinating that even within the unique object of the scrap screen, there's so much room for expression and experimentation. One specific scrap screen you've studied is an 1860s scrap screen made by actor William McCready and the author Charles Dickens. Could you tell us a bit about this object? Of course. Um, so this is a really interesting piece, not least because it's associated with a specific individual or actually a pair of individuals in this instance. And this is unusual for the genre. Most of them that we find today have no kind of associated biography. So it can be very difficult to try and work out what is going on and what the motivations for arranging these different kinds of scraps might have been. But it is a four leaf wooden folding screen made sometime around 1860. And it features around 400 engravings dating from the 1820s to the 1840s, which have been cut and pasted onto the back and front of the screen and subsequently varnished, the application of which has given it a kind of yellowish tinge. Each panel of the screen is 202 by 77.5 centimetres and its total length is 310 centimetres. So it's quite a big object and it's very impressive when you see it in person. And the screen is attributed to William McCready, who is often thought of as the greatest Shakespearean actor of the Victorian period, as well as the author Charles Dickens, who is McCready's close personal friend, although the attribution to Dickens is a little more shaky. 
So it's currently in the collections of Sherborne House in Dorset, uh, and Dickens often visited Macready there, and by family repute, they worked together to produce this remarkable object. And so just to give you a sense of what it looks like, the screen is arranged in a relatively orderly fashion, especially when we compare it to some of the other surviving scrap screens from the period. Um, And the engravings are cut into square and rectangular panels. And these are arranged according to no immediately self-evident system, although many of the engravings have subsequently been identified. And you can actually look at each individual engraving featured on the screen thanks to a really brilliant digitisation project done in partnership with the University of Kent. So the engravings comprise a range of artistic genres, including genre scenes, history paintings and portraits. And tellingly, the subjects include images of actors and actresses, scenes from Shakespeare, prints after well-known paintings and even a portrait of Dickens himself, which is obviously an appropriate uh, subject for the pair. But other portraits include individuals like Edmund Burke, William Pitt the Elder, the politician, Thomas Carlyle and Lord Byron. So really it's interesting that Dickens includes himself here. It's almost like he's inserting himself into a pantheon of other worthies from kind of stage and literature. Otherwise, the screen uh, shows images of the Italian landscape, images from a genre which we call beauties, so kind of beautiful women who are uh, not portraits, just kind of generalised depictions of women, and a number of classical images, so things like sculpture and other images from kind of classical antiquity and the Italian Renaissance. So it's a real mix of images from this period. Between its images, scale, materials, and creators, what is the significance of this object for art historians and those interested in 19th century material culture? That's a really good question. So when they make this in the 1860s, it's important to note that Macready and Dickens uh, were engaging in what I think to be an aesthetic and intellectual tradition of collage production that had been prevalent for decades and which would endure well into the 19th century and would eventually be sort of taken up by uh, modernist artists like Pablo Picasso and George Braque. And so looking at objects like this helps us to reassemble an unwritten prehistory of collage, disrupting the standard art historical narrative that it was invented by Picasso and Braque in 1912. A good example of this type of art historical writing is from the essay Collage, A Brief History by Dawn Ardes, who writes that when Picasso and Braque started gluing bits to their pictures in 1912, This had nothing to do with long-standing popular pastimes, like pasting cut-out images onto fire screens and everything to do with art. And so this statement is typical of existing histories of collage, which tend to figure the genre as the result of modernist innovation as opposed to a medium with a long and distinctive history. The quotation from Ardas is interesting uh, because it brings up a number of sort of categorical distinctions which pose interesting questions about the nature of art itself, how it is defined, of the identities and motivations of those who make it, and why certain objects are consistently overlooked within art history. So crucially, it reinforces a number of entrenched hierarchies from art history, so differences between high and low art forms, divisions of modern and pre-modern, and most crucially, this sort of gendered separation between artist and amateur. 
Yet the McCready Dickens screen complicates this simplistic narrative of non-art and art, male artist and female amateur. And it's one of several made by famous men in the 19th century, often authors like Lord Byron or Beau Brummel um, at one end of the century and Hans Christian Andersen at the other. So they're associated with Dickens, that most famous of 19th century authors. It is only by placing this object within these broader context of Victorian material culture and in relation to a long art historical trajectory of collage that we can really understand its disruptive potential as an object that complicates boundaries between high and lowbrow masculine and feminine. On behalf of myself and the entire crafting community's team thank you so much for sharing your research with us today. It was a complete pleasure. You have been listening to Dr. Freya Gowley on the MacReady Dickens scrap screen. For a closer look at this object, you can follow the link on the Victorian Samplings webpage to the University of Kent's Digital Gallery. I'm Dr. Allison Headley, and I'm the author of Making Pictorial Print, Media Literacy in British Magazines, 1885 to 1918, a book that's coming out this summer with the University of Toronto Press. In my book, I look at several genres appearing in illustrated magazines, including advertisements, infographics, snapshot fora, but I also look at homemade paper media that readers produced for themselves. And one of the objects that I explore in my book is a scrapbook created by Reverend Frederick W. Langton, who was the vicar of Pontland at the turn of the 19th century. Langton compiled the scrapbook between the 1870s and 90s, and it assembles what he terms Ruskiniana, excerpts from the press that mention the art critic John Ruskin. John Ruskin was a very well-known art critic and critic of society and culture in the 19th century. The materials come from all kinds of different sources, regional dailies, big papers, weeklies, monthlies, punch, even the girl's own, which is a, a bit of an unusual source. Um, most of these scraps were cut directly from the magazines and newspapers and pasted into the album in different ways. Um, although some are handwritten copies of periodical letterpress. So Langton's scrapbook features in my book because of the creative ways that Langton used layout and design. His design techniques can be sorted into generally two categories. In the first category are practices that he adapted pretty directly from mass magazines and newspapers. Um, for example, many article cuttings are laid out on the album pages in much the same way they would be in a periodical or newspaper. On a given page, a cutting is arranged in columns that are spatially regularized. And above these columns, you've got the, the masthead of the periodical and the original heading for the article. So the whole thing looks very much like a periodical page, um, except with wider margins because that album space is a little bit bigger. With this kind of layout, Langton was effectively recreating the original context of a cutting, intentionally mimicking journalistic media. So why do this? By displaying his familiarity with these kinds of conventions, Langton was invoking journalistic authority. 
And this strengthens the credibility of his album as a kind of Ruskin documentary. The use of periodical techniques also had practical advantages. These very tried and true layout conventions balance readability and economy of space in a way that just about any reader of the scrapbook would immediately recognize um, when looking through the pages. That's the first category of Langton's design techniques. The second category encompasses practices that are especially interesting to me because they're more imaginative. They go beyond the standard periodical conventions to make the scrapbook more interactive. So one way that Langton innovates is by developing three-dimensional functionality within um, the album space. So for example, in a few places, a particularly large cutting has been folded up um, and then the back of it pasted to a small square of the page. This means that a reader, in order to view the cutting, has to fold it sort of up and outward and then fold it back in again to turn to the next page, making everything more interactive. To give another example, in one part of the album, a separate multi-page item, a pamphlet, has been tipped in between two pages. So these kind of techniques play with the boundary between the physical form of the album and the the conceptual space of the page, um, enable this more sort of interactive 3D form of reading. And that, that second example that I just gave, the tipped-in pamphlet, is an especially cool example of design innovation, in my view, if we look at it a little bit closer. So that pamphlet is titled Whistler v. Ruskin, Art and Art Critics, and it's about a quarrel among art historians, a pretty infamous quarrel between James McNeil Whistler and John Ruskin. This all began when Ruskin criticized Whistler's Nocturne and Black and Gold, um, and the whole thing culminated in a libel suit. So in the pamphlet, which was published by Whistler himself, he defends his role in the lawsuit and reflects on the relationship between art and criticism. So the pamphlet is pasted to the page guard between a series of other articles on the dispute. And this, this sort of spatial juxtaposition of the articles in the pamphlet contributes to the meaning of each. They're sort of in conversation. The pamphlet on its own functions as a, a mini codex. It's written entirely from Whistler's point of view. And in that way, it offers a, like a momentary immersion for the reader in a perspective that otherwise you don't get in this album, which is full of snippets about Ruskin. The other cuttings in this section of the album are all different reports and commentary on the quarrel by journalists and critics. Now, surrounded by what is mostly pro-Ruskin content in this scrapbook, um, Whistler's point of view doesn't carry much weight, but the presence of this pamphlet boosts the material authenticity of the album as a whole. It rounds out the album's range of documentary evidence. So what can the Ruskiniana scrapbook tell us about historical readers? To begin with, obviously, it tells us that one particular reader, uh, Reverend Langton, knew a lot about John Ruskin. Uh, we might say that the scrapbook models the knowledge domain of Ruskiniana. And the scrapbook also models Langton's understanding of print media as such. It models Langton's understanding of how periodicals function as media their design, their layout, the materiality, and how all of those things are important to a reader's interpretation. In my book, I describe this understanding as print media literacy. 
and I argue that many, perhaps, most readers of periodicals had this literacy of print media in the 19th century. Langton wasn't alone in using scrapbooks to model periodical design and functionality. It was actually very common among scrapbook makers. And the more creative scrapbook design techniques that Langton used also demonstrate how readers in the 19th century used their print media literacy to explore new possibilities for media design. So it wasn't just that readers were literate in media functionality. They were assessing media critically, appropriating them, and even developing unique innovations. And some of those innovations even eventually found their way into mass-produced print. I use this concept of print media literacy in my book to argue that Victorian and Edwardian readers were quite media savvy, engaging very critically and creatively with their changing media landscape. What a pleasure it is to thank Alison, Freya, and Maria for their contributions to this episode. You can learn more about their research by visiting craftingcommunities.net. Thank you to Anne Hung for her work creating this episode. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of the episode, and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. The rest of the team worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. Tune in again soon to hear the next episode of Victorian Samplings. <laughs>